0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: My book is really ambitious in that it's pretty much the first book to comprehensively look at the history of women in intelligence from the First World War, so from 1914 all the way through to the end of the Second World War in 1945. And I bring out some really interesting overview actually of what women achieved so it's not just that women were there it's what did they actually achieve and what I discovered was that a large amount of what they achieved was hidden by official secrecy.
0: Hi everyone this is AJ Woodhams host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today, I am super excited to have on the show Helen Fry for her newest book, Women in Intelligence, The Hidden History of Two World Wars. Helen is a historian and biographer. She is the best-selling author of The Walls Have Ears, that's a great title, by the way, Um, Spy Master, MI9, and more than 20 books on intelligence Prisoners of War, and the Social History of the Second World War. Helen, how are you doing today?
1: Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, likewise. Um, Really excited to be talking about this topic today. I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording. World War II, super interesting to me. And um, topics like yours, um, Women in Intelligence, love that you wrote this book because, again, it's it's, uh, a book about stuff that just doesn't get talked about too much. And as you kind of write about in your book, when we do hear about women in intelligence, it's often like these like really dramatic stories that overshadow some of the other um, equally, if not more important work done by, by other women in intelligence. Um, so yeah, um, I gotta ask, so your book is about two world wars, the World War I and World War II, which seems very ambitious. Um, is that how this, how did, did, did this project start off like that? Or were you like, there's just there's so much material here. I got to go for both world wars instead of focusing on one.
1: Well, I actually made the decision in conjunction with my publisher to cover both World Wars and the 1920s and 30s, so the period between the First World War and Second World War. But, of course, once I started, I realised the humongous task that I had, momentous task ahead of me. And really, it was containing the sheer volume of stories and, the well, very exciting stories. But to understand what women achieved in the Second World War, a lot of the roots and many of the women that I studied... for for so many years, had worked in intelligence from the First World War and right the way through to the Second World War. That's not true in all cases, but for me, I, I felt we had to understand... What were women doing as early as the first world war? Of course I could have gone earlier, but you have to contain this somehow. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, that's like the historian's curse, right? Is like, when did things actually start? Like did world war one <laughs> cause world war two, but did, you know, did the Franco-Prussian war cause world war one or, you know, you can just keep going back, um, for, for a while. So stopping at world war one was probably a, a good idea. Um, Well, uh, I like to ask when when authors come on this show, one of the things I like to ask is, and we just kind of touched on this, but in your own words, can you just tell us what is your book about?
1: My book is really ambitious in that it's pretty much the first book to comprehensively look at at the history of women in intelligence from the First World War, so from 1914 all the way through to the end of the Second World War in 1945. And I bring out some really interesting overview, actually, of what women achieved. So it's not just that women were there. It's what did they actually achieve? And what I discovered was that a large amount of what they achieved was hidden by official secrecy. So I look at women who were in uniform, so in military intelligence, in air intelligence, naval intelligence. And I also look at the secret service organisations. So for the UK, that's MI5, which is in charge of home security, and MI6, which is in charge of our security abroad, if you like. So the equivalent of the FBI and the CIA, and trying to understand they weren't just women sat at a desk with a pencil and paper. They were doing far more than that. And in fact, sometimes the titles that they had for their roles were, well, they certainly weren't cooks or secretaries, for example. So for me, it was a matter of putting on record and understanding the diversity of what women had achieved in this period of, you know, one of the most important times in the 20, 20th century.
0: Yeah. Uh, quick question on, I'm glad you brought up like the, the equivalent with like the, I think you would call them the M offices and like the CIA here in, yes. in the States. Um, how many M offices are there? Because I, what, James Bond is in um, mi six, right? That's like the one that's most well-known. Uh, yes. Maybe he's MI5. Um, I think it's MI6. He's MI6. How many he's MI6 yeah, he's okay, a secret he's MI6. agent. <laughs> 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 uh, how many EMO offices yeah. are there?
1: Well, traditionally, it started from MI1. So MI stands for military intelligence. And it went from MI1 all the way up to MI19. There were just a couple of them that weren't ever used, but they cover different aspects of intelligence. So MI8, for example, covers the radio security service and code breaking traditionally, like Bletchley Park came under that code and cipher school. Well, actually, part also fell for a while and still under MI6. But those military intelligence, MI9, for example, was in charge of the escape line. So you had something equivalent in American intelligence in the Second World War, getting our allied airmen and soldiers back from behind enemy lines. There was a branch of military intelligence in America and in the UK that was bringing our guys back so that they could fight another day effectively. They use escape gadgets and all that kind of James Bond Q gadgets, and they had secret escape lines. So yes, there were several military intelligences and most of them don't survive today.
0: Was that right? Oh, is that just because like their functions are no longer um, necessary to modern intelligence gathering?
1: Yes, as far as we can tell, or maybe they were closed down at the end of the Second World War and in contemporary times, maybe they've started similar intelligence work under new names. I don't know. I haven't studied contemporary intelligence. But by and large, we're left with just two that we know of, and that's MI5 and MI6.
0: Okay. Um, well, thank you for that kind of uh, that, that explanation for our American audience who might similarly um, not be hip to the designations in the UK. Although maybe everybody knows this and I'm just kind of waking up to it. But um, well, let's kind of speaking of intelligence history, let's talk a little bit about. um, So obviously, like a large part of your book is about British intelligence. Um, What's what's the history leading up to World War One? What's the history of intelligence? Uh, leading up to kind of where your your book starts, and traditionally, like how, and I don't know if you if this is something we even know, but how have women traditionally been have 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 they played roles in intelligence up to World War One?
1: The answer is yes. There has been a book written about women working in intelligence espionage in the seventeenth century. I do make reference to one of our queens, Queen of England, Elizabeth I. So she reigned in the 16th century, so the 1500s, and she was what we would really term a spy mistress. So she founded her own intelligence network. It wasn't very formalised like we have the FBI and CIA today, but nevertheless, she had a very famous minister Sir Francis Walsingham, and they were engaged in all kinds of traditional spycraft. Yes, they were opening people's mail and seeing if they were plotting against the queen, because the queen's throne was at threat. You know, monarchs throughout history had to keep their thrones in the UK. Actually, you know, there were a lot of threats against the stability and their survival. And we had a short period where we had the civil war, where we had no monarch, where a man called Oliver Cromwell instigated effectively a republic but we went back to monarchy again and we still have the monarch and, and I'm great uh, you know I'm a great monarchist and I think that's fabulous but of course before the first world war we didn't really have women in uniform working in intelligence so in terms of intelligence services it was largely a male domain that's not to say that women weren't used discreetly in areas where there were conflict particularly we're talking about the boer war in south africa towards the end of the 20th century so it ends in 1902 so we don't really know what women were doing there we know that some were involved in intelligence but not in uniform and it's really the first world war where things begin for for women
0: well let's talk about uh, uh world war 1 then so what 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 characterizes uh, intelligence gathering during World War one like what what kinds of activities are going on? I think you write in your book uh, that that Britain was kind of um, terrorized by the idea of of Germans among them. Uh, talk a little bit just about that atmosphere and and how intelligence went
1: so the British intelligence services were founded what now today we know as MI5 and MI6 were founded in 1909 because of the threat from Germany Germany was seen to be a threat to the stability and that turned out to be true in 1914 in August 1914 when german forces occupied belgium and Luxembourg, and a bit of northern France. So we were at war with Germany then. And there was a fear that there were German spies operating in Britain, and trying to destabilise the situation in Britain. And so we our domestic security service, MI5, was in charge of the two threats, really, the threats of German spies. And it was turned out to be probably quite over-exaggerated for the First World War, but there was this sort of fear. And there was still the threat of communism from the Russians. So they had that dual threat, which still, you know, was something through the 1920s and 30s into the Second World War. So we have the women of MI5 who start conducting all kinds of intelligence work a lot of their early work is administrative but they soon become experts and some of them a couple of key prominent women become experts on soviet intelligence so on, on all things russian and then if we look at occupied europe so we're talking as i said about belgium and luxembourg that's occupied by the germans holland is not occupied in the first world war so holland is neutral and that's a really good place for lots of spies to go in and out of holland and they're trying to our british intelligence spies are trying to get into uh, belgium and luxembourg trying to see what the germans are doing in terms of behind enemy lines in terms of moving their troops because to move their troops to the front line which is in france they have to cross the whole of Belgium, pretty much. So Belgium sort of there in the middle. So we had really important intelligence networks. One of them was called the White Lady Network. And incredibly brave men and women, Belgians, and some Dutch actually, would try and smuggle messages out into neutral Holland, and there was an MI6, what's called MI6 today, MI6 man there, and getting the intelligence back to the UK. So if you could You could monitor the the huge movement of troops across a few days, because at that time, logistically, it took a long time for the Germans to move all their armaments and troops, which they did by train. And they're moving it across Belgium. And if you could work out which direction they're going, oh, they're heading to, to right in the far corner of northern France, you know where the next offensive is coming. So you can move your own troops to counter that. That's really, really important because otherwise you could be in an area that's not so secure, that's not so easy to defend. But, you know, even with their help, it was a a long and difficult war across four years. You know, it was a real bloody war with trenches and stalemate. And without those intelligence networks, it could have been a very different outcome
0: well a, a couple of things one thing that as you were talking that uh that I thought of was about um spying on the soviets um and of course, I think nineteen seventeen is when yes. um the com- or the the Bolsheviks i don't actually i mean that's actually that's kind of maybe a can of worms, but more or less there's a revolution in Russia and yes. the communists eventually come to power um what was what was the fear from? the The Soviets at the time, because they weren't in power yet, were was, were people afraid that maybe communism was spreading? Like, ha, what what were the attitudes towards communism? Um, generally, I think of like when people are very afraid of communism, I think of either like the interwar period or in America like post World War II, but yes. not so much during World War One.
1: So I'm not an expert on the Russian Revolution itself. What I do know from studying British intelligence in this period is that the, the communism, communism was a threat to democracy. And when we get to the end of the First World War, a year later, so all the guns fall silent in November 1918, and the Western armies are starting to disband, they're starting to demobilise. We have the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, which is designed to bring peace to Europe and various new countries are created. But amongst that, a lot of the British intelligence spies were, were trying to track uh, communist spies and agents. And what those communist spies and agents were doing, they were trying to infiltrate those armies of Europe that were disbanding that were demobilizing and what they were trying to get them to do was to overthrow democracy in those countries in france britain wherever trying to get those armies to mount a coup now we've been there in recent times haven't we with ukraine that was one of the first things that the russians tried to do was to get the ukrainian army to mount a coup and overthrow Zelensky government, etc. So we see some very interesting patterns. That's as far as I go in contemporary times (laughs) I don't study. But we mustn't underestimate that after 1917, it really was a threat and the Soviets were very active in espionage and they'd embedded spies all across Europe and and across the world, actually, and in particular in the UK. So, again, we've got MI5 tracking Soviet spies in the UK. We've got MI6, otherwise known as Secret Intelligence Service, tracking spies across Europe in case they're trying to infiltrate Britain.
0: Well, before we get ahead of ourselves, uh, I was wondering if maybe you could share uh, a couple of the stories from the women that, that you chronicle uh, in your book from World War One, the World War I period. Um, if maybe you could just share the two that, that you find most striking.
1: One of the most striking of the stories from the First World War is about a British nurse, which I think most people have heard of. She was Edith Cavell. She was British, but she was working in Belgium, in Brussels, in the capital. And at that time, she was, well, the outbreak of war, nursing French soldiers, and then eventually... British soldiers she was trying to get Belgians out of the country so they could enlist and fight with their king who was in exile but what I discovered was that she was actually a spy as well so not necessarily the nurses around her but she herself independently founded this spy network and she had a whole raft of men and women working for her as agents who were not not necessarily doing the nursing profession they were actually a separate organization and we've always had this discussion in Britain you know was she a spy or not and sometimes people say yes of course she was well what's the evidence do we really really know and then others would say no she was just rescuing wounded soldiers and smuggling them out of Belgium well her network was but I discovered that actually she was a spy, and of course the Germans believed she was guilty of espionage. She was betrayed by one of her network under intense interrogation. He, he This this chap, Krien was his surname, had intense interrogation, and he betrayed – it's sort of understandable, but he betrayed her. And she was shot at dawn on the 12th of October 1915. I mean, mm. that was the consequence. So she went – So that was to, her –
0: that was her network. Is the the goal was to to smuggle um, uh, wounded soldiers who were behind enemy lines back to Britain. That was that was what she did.
1: That's one aspect of her work. But she was also running separate to that or alongside it, an intelligence network to actually smuggle intelligence out to the British. So not just the soldiers. And I worked very hard and found <laughs> found the evidence in London that she absolutely was a spy so we can rest that now we can say with <laughs> absolute certainty what
0: what, what was the evidence she was, a spy. was it did she write down I am I am a spy what is the uh, what's, no, what's, what's the evidence
1: it's investigations by our military intelligence services I MI5 and MI6 into her death and into the betrayal. And they also interview some of those that were closest to her that were in the network. And a lot of them were women. And these women talk about traditional spy craft. So using invisible ink, small messages, hidden, smuggling things out, acting as couriers. I mean, incredibly dangerous.
0: Yeah.
1: And you asked me about two women. I think the other one would have to be, it's very, very hard, you know, because they're so, so brave. The other one was a woman called Gabrielle Pretit, who was Belgian. And she founded a similar intelligence organisation called the Alice Service. But she also was captured by the Germans. And she always said when she first started out, the thing she feared most was the firing squad at dawn. Of being shot but she was so brave she took courage from Edith Cavell. Edith Cavell was sort of her role model but Gabrielle Petit did pay with her life for smuggling intelligence out to the allies but it was so needed because how else were we going to know what was happening in occupied Belgium. The Germans had actually constructed this electrified fence you'll remember reading about that in the book and it was very difficult for people to come in and out of Belgium after May 1915. So they were so, so courageous.
0: So what 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 are the, um, the activities women in intelligence did? And I'm curious how that compared to what, what men in intelligence were doing.
1: Well, if we look at what the women were doing behind enemy lines, they are largely invisible. I do refer to them as invisible spies because they're doing an important job that the men can't do. If the men are of an age when they should be fighting in the army and they're busy cycling through enemy occupied territory, the Germans are going to look and think, oh, you know, he's 23, 24, whatever. Why isn't he in uniform? Why is he not fighting on the front line? So they might pick him up as a spy. So women were doing a lot of the intelligence work. There were much younger So teenagers and men in their 70s, 80s would be involved in the networks. But that whole middle age of men would largely couldn't really do much behind enemy lines because they should be fighting in their own regiment and the Germans would be suspicious of them. When we talk on the home front in Britain, it was slightly different in that the the intelligence services were quite hierarchical and men would quite often be paid more for the same job than the women. The women primarily started out with the clerical and administrative duties. But what I found exciting, and it's something I mentioned earlier, is that they, the women start to become experts and they start to become indispensable and necessary. And that, for me, is a really important window into something that's been hidden for so long. And our audience can read about that in the book, just how that change is made.
0: Well, uh, I wonder if there was any recognition post-World War I um, for these women in intelligence. Did they largely go unknown uh, or was there any recognition?
1: In terms of awards to Belgians, men and women actually, they did receive awards and their names were listed in one of the major London newspapers in 1919. So there was a move to have them recognised and the men and women were recognised, given awards for bravery, depending on what they had achieved. So there was no differentiation on gender. If they were brave enough to qualify for a particular medal, then that's what they got. So there was a recognition, which I think was great.
0: Yeah. Well, let's fast forward to World War II, um, which I know you do, you do write about an interwar period, which um, largely is trying to root out communists. Um, when we get to World War II, how has how has spycraft changed? How has um, how has intelligence changed? And um, what how is the role of women in the intelligence services? How has that changed?
1: Well, we get a sense that since the First World War, by the time we get to the Second World War, we've got, of course, a lot more women in uniform, and we get thousands upon thousands of them that start to work in all aspects of military intelligence, but that also includes naval intelligence, if they're enlisted into the Navy, as we call them Wrens, and also air intelligence. So again, we've traditionally dismissed the women, much like in the early days when the code breaking site of Bletchley Park, the women had been overlooked. But now we've got a huge understanding of what went on at Bletchley Park. In that two thirds of the workforce were women, and they were, you know, doing the code breaking. They were mending the machines. They were doing all kinds of things. In fact, some of them cracked the Japanese codes, as well as the German Enigma codes, uh, Enigmas. So that, for me, was important to focus on some of the women that haven't really been written about with regards to Bletchley Park and that whole code-breaking field. So we've got about 8,000 women working on that one site, about 30 miles north of London. But what I also uncovered were there are other secret sites where women are doing aerial intelligence and by the middle of the war there are american personnel working with these women again analyzing photographic intelligence from the the missions over enemy territory by our aircraft with these huge cameras they're taking the photographs and then the men and women at these secret sites are analyzing them particularly the women are coming up with all kinds of details they've got some of the files say that the women are much more patient at analyzing in for the long run analyzing it and that's why they managed to pick up some of the obscure looking items on some of the photographs that they actually identified this as one of Hitler's secret weapons you know could have changed the war if we hadn't discovered that and then at another secret site the women were the first interrogators I mean extraordinary stories that you know the second world war we used the first female interrogators in wartime and today we might not think that is particularly unusual but in the second world war interrogation was very much a man's world you've got your German prisoners of war and in some cases Italian prisoners of war as Italy was fighting on the side of Germany for the early part of the war, so you know th- those men, those soldiers, are expecting to be interrogated by two men, and in walked two women, and that that's very interesting. Yeah,
0: how yeah. many how many women were? I, I should have asked this when we were talking about World War One too, but um, how many women were in the intelligence service? You, you gave the number eight thousand, I think. It,
1: well, eight thousand. 000- Yeah, 8,000 working at Bletchley Park, the code-breaking site. When we look at the other aspects of intelligence, very hard, because we don't have a full list of their names. We don't have a full list of names of women, well, all men, that worked in MI5 and MI6. That's just they never released those files. And then we have a whole raft of women and men, again, working behind enemy lines helpers couriers they're helping on the escape lines to get our guys back from behind enemy lines and again we don't have the helpers files released those families are protected forever they're not released into the british archives so we don't know we have no idea but it's thousands
0: yeah well what what are a couple of the uh, the World War II stories that um, that you found particularly interesting? I think for World War II actually you you interviewed um, former spies in person, correct
1: I have done over the years, yes, yeah, so this research is accumulation of material that I've gathered across 20 years. I've been writing for some 20, 25 years. I know I don't look old enough, but I am. (laughs) Um, And in that time, I realised that some of these stories needed to be told. And they needed to be told alongside a book about the women, because I thought some of these stories would not be told by contemporary historians. They might think they're not important enough. And we have a lot of focus on the secret agents, the women that were dropped behind enemy lines into France. Famously, of course, we have Virginia Hall, the spy with a wooden leg. There's been quite a lot about her in America. And Inyat Noor Khan, the Sufi Indian who became the first wireless operator to be dropped into France. So I I briefly look at those because so much has been written about them. But the SOE, as it was called, the Special Operations Executive, had a number of women that were pretty senior. They might not have the title and the role, but one famous one, Vera Atkins, might be familiar to our audience. She was the deputy head of the French section and she sent Virginia Hall, Inyat Noor Khan and other women and men behind enemy lines into France. But I uncovered a whole raft of other women who were parallel to her, that were sending the agents into places like Austria, into the Balkans, on hugely dangerous missions, into Germany, and recovering their legacies. It's just been complete silence about them. And then I also look at some of the agents that were dropped into other parts of Europe, some of the women, I mean, incredibly dangerous missions, and some of them, of course, you know, like with the French section, didn't survive I mean, it was it was just perilous, and you know the bravery. Those women, so many of them were just in their early twenties. Yeah. Incredibly if was, brave.
0: If there is one story that you're like, this is this is incredible and extraordinary, but nobody really knows about it. What 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 story would that be?
1: That would be probably it's a hard question, but it would probably be the female spy who was actually the subject of the only spy swap of the Second World War, the only one that we currently know about from declassified files. But I was reliably ensured that she was subject to the only spy swap. So we think of, you mentioned the Cold War earlier, we think of the Cold War, Glennica Bridge, that wonderful film, Bridge of Spies, one of my favourite all-time films, actually. I love it. So we think of spy swaps in the Cold War, but there was one spy swap in the Second World War. And I devote a substantial chapter to this woman who was incredibly brave and spent a lot of time in Gestapo prisons, but she was obviously so valuable that she was swapped for a German uh, prisoner and then goes on to work in brave circumstances in the Cold War and spends nine years in a Soviet prison, but is eventually released. So she is one of those hugely courageous women and i find myself asking what is it in those women is it this sort of iron courage i'm not wanting to say that they're braver than the men not at all but we've come across some pretty feisty you know iron cast women that of course would never have seen themselves as heroines or particularly brave
0: well, I wonder if there are, just kind of thinking about the traits that make up some of these, these brave women, I wonder, what, what's the typical background of a woman in the intelligence service? Um, what kinds of families do they come from? What How do they get recruited into a lot of these, uh, these roles in the first place? Just what types of people are they?
1: Well, that's a whole raft of questions and a whole subject of a book in <laughs> itself almost, because... The ways of recruitment, if I answer that part first, were various. They were different for different women. Um, if they enlisted in the uniformed forces, so air, naval, army, then at some point they might have seen an advertisement which says, you know, do you speak languages? We could do with you. would you like to do special duties? That kind of thing. Sometimes they were approached. It could, could be various. The early women who worked at Bletchley Park, that code-breaking site. A lot of them were what we would call debutantes, so they'd had a particular kind of education. They had come from good backgrounds, but eventually, women of all backgrounds were used, and that. So that's on the home front. Behind enemy lines in both world wars, what I discovered were the women could be of all ages and of all backgrounds. So they could come from quite humble, poor backgrounds, but also they could be they were sometimes counts, countesses, so from the aristocracy, with you know helping, living in their castles, sheltering people, smuggling messages. So there isn't one particular kind of person who's actually doing this work, which is interesting because you never know when you start out in your research, really what you're going to find. You might find there's one particular group that that tends to be doing this work, but it's not. It's right across society.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, since we, so your book's about to come out in in America. By the time this publishes, it will be out in America. Um, What do we know about American women? in intelligence. Is there anything that um, um, we know about? Maybe there weren't American women overseas. Maybe there were. What, what do we know about American women during World War II in intelligence?
1: Yeah, there were absolutely. And there are a whole raft of really good books that are just coming out. Lisa Mundy has just brought out a book on the women in the CIA. And there are other books on, on women. So I would encourage your listeners to google away and check because recently in the last six months or coming out soon in the next few weeks there are there's a body of work by women primarily historians in america who've looked at the american story because to be perfectly honest it isn't possible for either of us the historians in america or historians here like me in the uk to cover both It, it would just be um it wouldn't do justice to the depth that we need to understand now. It would just be too much of a a broad overview. So I really welcome the fact that there are historians at both sides of the Atlantic that are writing specifically on American women in intelligence. And I've written not solely but largely from the British angle.
0: Yeah. Well, just kind of speaking about um, the... Uh, uh, women in other countries, the um, nazi, uh, Nazi-aligned nazi spies, um, the German spies. What do we know about uh, women in, in adversary countries' intelligence services?
1: Well, the Germans did use female spies but not very many of them actually and i haven't studied it in any detail but it looks like most of them were really working for us i mean i could be wrong uh, it, again it's it's what material is available for research and primarily the germans didn't really think of women as spies i mean they did use some of them they, they used some of our double agents the british double agents they thought they thought here we have a group of of women who we've managed to recruit for us, but and then we're sending them back to try and infiltrate British intelligence, but they're really working for us. But actually it was the other way around. The British intelligence had sent them <laughs> and successfully got the Germans to take them on board. So a bit like the, the male double agents. So in that case, they're not really working for Germany. So it's incredibly difficult to tell, actually. I'm not sure the material is totally available but traditionally Germans thought that in the first world war thought that women should be at home or were at home looking after the family and if they're out and about in occupied territory then they're obviously going they're going shopping they're going to go and get a loaf of bread maybe they're visiting relatives but it didn't occur to them and, and that's why I use that phrase I come back to that phrase again the women were invisible spies they were just invisible to the Germans So I don't think the Germans use them, certainly not in their uniform services in the military in the same way. They did have some senior test pilots, two women, but on the whole, they didn't use women.
0: Well, thinking about how, as you've mentioned, a lot of these stories have um, gone untold and obviously the role of women in both these world wars in the intelligence services was very important. Um, You do write in your, I think in in your epilogue, you write that, yes, there was, um, there was the patriarchy. And um, a a lot of times, uh, men made it difficult for these stories to get out. Um, But it was actually more like bureaucratic, um, red tape, a lot of these stories are still Uh, shrouded in secrecy that made it very Mm -hmm. difficult for you. But I am actually interested in maybe the the more, the patriarchy aspect of some of these stories, what do you think was the hardest channel for a lot of these women to navigate uh, in terms of proving themselves to men and, and, and to the world?
1: I think the hardest thing was for them to reach senior roles. So in many cases, they become experts in their fields, even if they don't have the title and the promotion. And there were moves to get women promoted, but only so far. And there were discussions in the files that I've discovered where men were supportive of the women and were trying to, so their senior officers were trying to say, look, the women are doing this job. They should be paid the same as the men. So let's not forget also in civilian life, women were behind in that respect so what i find is that in in much of the intelligence world i think the progress was made quicker than in civilian life and that there are examples there's no question that of course that it was a patriarchal society there were limitations for women but one of the surprising things for me was that throughout this period that I'm writing about women do become experts and they are utterly indispensable in terms of intelligence even if they don't become deputy director or director it took a long time for women to reach the top and this year is the first year that we have a female director of GCHQ the successor of Bletchley Park so you would have your equivalent would be NSA I guess. So we have our first female uh... director after all this time, and it was founded in 1909. So it's, it's a lot of progress. So women didn't reach the glass ceiling, as we would say, for a very long time. But that doesn't mean that they didn't achieve the most incredible things that were probably beyond their status role.
0: Before you started writing this book... I'm curious how you personally changed by the time you were done with it. How, how do you now view the world differently? Um, what, what personally about you would you say has changed, uh, from the beginning to the end of this book?
1: I think across the whole sort of 20, 25 years that I've been working on this, a growing sense that these stories must be told that, you know, if I've stumbled across them, I have, almost like a moral obligation to tell these stories because if I don't, who will? Who will find these particular... Each historian has his or her or their own way of navigating the research and they come across their unique stuff. But I do seem to have found some quite unusual material which is important, that's impacted on the outcome of war and, you know, in in terms of those intelligence Stories, I have been lucky enough to interview veterans a whole raft of them i've been the only one that's managed to interview them if i don 't tell their stories, who will and so I've yeah. probably changed in that sense in in feeling a moral obligation to keep going Isn't but it, but not know. not an obligation necessarily maybe not maybe yeah. obligation is not the right word maybe it's more I find these stories incredibly exciting and i just love the research i love the writing but i think there is an imperative if we are in a position where we can tell these stories i think there is a moral imperative and and to provide new heroes and heroines for our current times for our contemporary generation i think that's really important
0: role models just thinking about how um, interviewing people in person who who um went through World War II, I'm always, whenever I meet somebody here in the D.C. area, we have the um, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, <clears throat> and they will often have um, people at the entrance, just like at a desk, who were in a concentration camp, who yeah. who survived the Holocaust that so you can go up to and you can talk to. And I am always just, uh, I don't know if overwhelmed, but there's there's something so uh, special about talking to somebody who lived through a lot of this stuff, and just knowing, mm-hmm. like, you're looking to the eyes of somebody who witnessed, like, really incredible, terrible things. Um, you know, this is a generation that is is not going to it's going to age out. It's not going to be yes. uh, around with us. I wonder how how either lucky you feel, or maybe how 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 driven you feel to capture some of those stories and how important that uh, that the capturing them is to you.
1: Oh, absolutely vital. And in fact, during the lifetime of many of my veterans and they've all gone now, all the ones I interviewed, I felt driven to tell their stories during their lifetime. So they would have some recognition. They didn't want recognition, yeah. you know, to, yeah. to a person. They were very humble. In fact, it, it took me in, in some cases, a number of years to sit down with them, get their confidence, they, they didn't want their stories told. You know, I'm not a hero. Why why me? And then you just gradually talk around different ways. And then, well, OK, if you really do want to write a book about me. But, you know, it took a lot of persuading because they don't see themselves as very brave. Yeah. But I think that's good. I think they were happy in the end it gave them a new lease of life when they're in their 90s you know a new new occupation in retirement when they were having interviews and being on television and that kind of thing but we have lost that generation and, and for me I think we have to be really careful not to impose contemporary should I say contemporary agendas contemporary world view way of looking at the world on the era of 80 years ago, 100 years ago, to try and understand that world at that time. And that's something which we're trying to do here in the UK. I'm not sure if it's happening in America, but we really have to be careful that we understand why certain things happened the way they did and not to look back with modern eyes and reinterpret in a way that actually isn't accurate. Because then we're sort of rewriting history and we're not understanding history. And then, of course, we're destined potentially to repeat the mistakes of history. I think it's really important we understand history in its context. And what does it say to us today? What is it? What's its message? We might not agree with the message or we may agree with the message. But I, I think for me, that's a really important aspect and that certainly wasn't true 20 years ago this is a big new move now um, i do worry about some of the interpretations of history yeah
0: yeah well uh helen this has been uh, an incredible interview um i love the answers that you gave to to my questions um really a, a such a fascinating topic uh, if people want to stay in touch with you um how can they stay in touch are you on social media Um, Actually, I do know you're on social media because I follow you on Twitter and everyone out there, you should follow (laughs) Helen on Twitter. She has an excellent uh, Twitter feed where you often share stories of of people in World War II um, and other wars. Um, But where can people stay in touch with the work that you're doing?
1: So if they can have a look at my website, Helen-Fry.com. But you, as you said, I'm very active on Twitter. I'm a bit quite active on Instagram. But Twitter, if you do Twitter, Twitter X, then that's you'll see some of the exciting stories I'm uncovering. You'll hopefully be passionate about history in the way that I am. I think you'll kind of understand me if you look at my Twitter X feed and enjoy the stories that I'm putting out there.
0: Perfect. Um, well, uh, Helen Fry, women in intelligence, the hidden history of two world wars, uh, go check it out from your library, go buy a copy, um, a great story here, Helen. And again, thank you so much for your time today.